The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Big increases in petrol prices are really painful and they make us do strange things. But we know that in the long run, we're going to have to deal with higher and higher petrol prices if we're going to get to carbon zero. How do we do it? That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. KiwiBank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. And don't forget to subscribe so you get our podcast every week. When I was a kid, I accidentally brushed my arm up against a hot bar heater. Boy, did it hurt. And boy, did I move my arm away quickly. That lizard part of my brain reacted in the way we often react to painful stimuli. We move fast. We fight. We flight. We panic. And often it's a great way to deal with an immediate shock. But it does mean sometimes when you get an immediate shock, you make a knee-jerk decision, which can be the wrong thing in the long run. I'm a big fan of Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the classic book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, which looks at how consumers and businesses, decision makers, can make the wrong decision if they see a very painful stimuli and react very quickly. Sometimes it's the right decision, uh, but sometimes it's the wrong one. And today I want to talk about an economic decision we made that felt a lot like a lizard brain reaction, which may be the right decision, or at least part of it was the right decision in the long run, but it certainly was a a real panicked reaction. Take you back a week ago to a Facebook post that came out from Jimmy Ormsby, who was the managing director of Waitomo. That's the chain of discount fuel stations, often automated around the country, that make a point of selling cheap fuel. And so people who are attuned to cheap deals will tune in to Waitomo, whatever they say. At 10.07 on Friday, Jimmy Ormsby put out this Facebook post saying that he'd just been told by his wholesale supplier that there was going to be the biggest price increase he'd ever seen in the business and that that would have to be passed on to Waitomo customers at 6pm on Friday evening. So 10.07, he's telling people, I'm going to put the price up at 6pm and it's going to be quite a lot. And I want to tell you in time so you can go and fill up beforehand. Boy, did that create a reaction. That spread like wildfire on the internet and the Facebooks. And before you know it, there were queues hours long outside Waitomo's fuel stations all around the country on Friday night. And it was so bad that it actually made the news. And the Prime Minister's office had to send out a special note to 
media organisations to say that there was no fuel shortage in New Zealand, there was no need to queue for petrol. But I watched the footage that night and people who were that freaked, that panicked by the idea of a big fuel price increase, potentially to well over $3 a litre, after the oil price rose to over $100 US a barrel earlier that week because of the Ukraine war, that they were willing to queue for two, three, four hours to make sure they didn't get charged with that extra high petrol price. It was like that single bar heater. Mm! I wanted to do something quite dramatic to avoid the pain of that higher petrol price, knowing that actually spending three or four hours in a queue to save a couple of bucks on a tank of gas doesn't really make sense. But there are some times when the shock, the psychological shock of a change in a price level will make us do strange things. And it's not just the price of fuel. For a politician, it can be a political poll. And the previous night, on the Thursday night, Labour got quite a shock, a bit like a single bar heater giving them a burn on the arm, which was that they were behind National for the first time since the 2020 election. So over that weekend, we'd seen petrol price queues, we'd seen the price go over $3 a litre. For a lot of people, it meant that to fill their tank was well over $100. Essentially, the collective lizard brain of New Zealand's society, our politics, our economics, just had a big old jolt. So what do you do when that happens? Well, for the government, there was an immediate reaction, a lizard brain reaction, which was on the Monday after decades of not cutting fuel tax excise when there had been a price increase, uh, Labor cut the price 25 cents a litre from midnight that night. That really was a bit of a surprise, and for those people who are trying to think a bit longer term, particularly around reducing our reliance on not just fossil fuels, petrol, diesel, coal, gas, but also in the countries that dominate its production, who are not just painful, they're dangerous, and they're corrupt, Russia, obviously, and Saudi Arabia. So, in the process of having a blizzard brain panicked reaction to a higher fuel price, the government had, in effect, reduced the incentives to change our behaviour in the long run. So how do we get around that? How do we make sure that, uh, in the long run, we make slow decisions and do the right thing to deal with a long-term problem, which is climate change? Because right now, the fuel price shock that we've seen and the rise in the oil price over $100 a barrel is obviously in reaction to the Ukrainian war and the sanctions and the disruptions to oil and gas production out of Russia. But actually, of course, the climate change issue and the security issue in Europe are pretty much one and the same. One of the reasons that the oil price has risen so sharply is that Germany, in the process of trying to reduce its reliance, particularly on coal, the worst type of carbon emission, had switched to Russian gas to produce electricity. It also incidentally had shut down its nuclear-fired power stations and the process became more reliant on Russian gas. So how can we react to this need to reduce our reliance on oil and gas and coal 
without having these short-term politically painful reactions, these lizard brain reactions, which actually frustrate our efforts to try and hit carbon zero by 2050. That's what we're talking about this week on When the Facts Change. How do we overcome some of these short-term reactions to price shocks, which is actually a price signal we need to achieve carbon zero? Firstly, we talked to Bronwyn Hayward, who is a political scientist from the University of Canterbury and has looked long and hard at what climate policies could work globally to achieve carbon zero, and also what is it about how our political system works, which make it so difficult to make these long-term changes. Then we speak to Kirsty Wilde, who is an environmental sociologist at the University of Auckland and looks closely at the public health issues around transport. In particular, how do we shift people from being in their cars, potentially running over pedestrians and cyclists, and get them out of their cars and onto their bikes? How do you change things in a way that means it sticks and that it's politically durable? She talks about some of the potential solutions so that we can think slower and achieve more in the long run. Then we speak to Susie Collins, an economist from Sense Partners, about the sorts of incentives we have in front of us and the sorts of policies that we'll need to be able to solve this long-run problem and overcome that lizard brain reaction. It's not all bad news, though, because the other half of the announcement this week from the government is halving for at least three months of public transport costs, i.e. bus and train fares, to encourage people to use public transport most. This is one of those more durable policy solutions that could actually change behaviour in the long run and achieve the aim of getting to carbon zero by 2050. That's this week on When the Facts Change. How do we think fast and think slow to achieve a long-term solution to a long-term problem that feels right now like a very short-term painful problem? First up, we speak to Bronwyn Hayward, who's a political scientist from the University of Canterbury, but with a special expertise. She helped write the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's most recent reports. Welcome to Bronwyn Hayward from the University of Canterbury. Bronwyn, great to have you on When the Facts Change. Kia ora, thanks, Bernard. So this week, the government saw a very high petrol price, and to help out those who are struggling with high petrol prices, it cut the petrol price by cutting the fuel tax levy by 25 cents a litre. The economist in me immediately thought, well, how are we going to change behaviour if we don't let the price signal work? But, but what do you think of the uh, decision this week? That plus, of course, also, of course, the uh, plan to halve public transport fares. Yeah, I think it's two things, really. One, I'd come out of three really intense weeks, two of no sleep and working during the day here in New Zealand, but all night for the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on the agreements around um, fossil fuels and getting countries to recognise the needs to protect the population. Then you come back to the harsh reality that there are big queues lined up panicking about um, petrol or diesel for often really large cars as well. And I'm trying not to judge that <laughs> because it's a very real instinct of panic. 
And it's also a very real cost for some people. So one of the key findings from the IPCC report was that you have to protect the most vulnerable because your lowest income and most marginal, the, your disabled communities, Indigenous, ethnic minorities, but your low income communities are most affected in two ways. They're most affected by the um, the impacts of climate change and they're most affected by the costs. And I think that's why I was pleasantly really surprised and pleased with the thinking that had gone on behind the reduction of um, public transport fares at the same time. And if the government is able to pull off what it intends to do in terms of thinking about ways to cross-subsidise or support um, investments in public transport, active transport and health as a collective solution at local government level, that will make an enormous difference if it can deliver it quickly. But the reality is that it's two things that we're in the middle of a big transition from. If we are moving to um, a more electrified private vehicle f fleet, which the government is, then keeping a carbon, keeping a tax on fuel is going to become very regressive on the people who can't afford to buy the electric cars. So part of my disconnect from the whole debate was that I cycle and I drive an electric car, which is a really privileged, lucky thing I can do. So it wasn't affecting me at all. And there's no point in feeling smug about that when other people I know who are working night shift, trying to get to um, the factory where my husband works, can't even afford actually to, to do that anymore at the moment. So as a community, a collective response matters. Yeah, I, I'm curious about the, the just transition idea uh, and particularly as you increase the price of carbon that those people who have built their lives around relatively cheap um, petrol and diesel and getting to and from work and school means using their cars. What sort of tools could um, the government use to make it a, a just transition but also uh, allow those market signals of a purely higher petrol and diesel price actually work? I think that there are two sides to that. One is that the just transition can be easily manipulated. I mean, we have seen um, especially the fossil fuel industry internationally saying we have to be protected, you know, we can't possibly adjust to this. Now, there is an element that is true. It is very hard. If you look at the West Coast here or you think about the Marsden Point refinery losing 300 jobs, but previously um, solid energy on the West Coast, those are high-income jobs that are very hard to replace with sustainable tourism or something else. And once you lose those jobs in a local community, you're losing middle-aged people who also support, and young families who also support things like the soccer clubs, the PTA, the local council. So you start to lose your social capital in your city, in your regional towns. So thinking about ways in which you can support regional economies to actually sustain themselves outside of what they've been built around, carbon or methane, which is our basic problem, is really, really hard. And yet we have to do it because it's not just that we um, need to do our fair share and everybody loves to say, oh, but look at all those big countries that are spending so much in carbon and fossil fuels and we're so little. But actually, if we continue down the route that we're on, we will become increasingly liable as our economy tries to export if we are still so reliant on 
fossil fuels and on methane increasingly as well. We will find it very hard in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of trade. So thinking about every element of our economy and our life matters. And that is really, really hard to do. Yeah, particularly in, you know, in politics and in life, you know, humans have a, a lizard brain, if, if you like. And when you have a shock, uh, a painful shock, like this increase in petrol prices because of a, a war, uh, uh, the immediate reaction is, ouch, make it stop. Given that climate change is a long-term problem, which arguably requires long-term responses, how should um, politicians and voters um, sort of retrain their lizard brains to <laughs> think a bit slower on this issue of climate change policy? I think that one of the key things we have to do is be very clear about political donations, and that's not just within New Zealand, but internationally. We need to be much more transparent about where the arguments and the lobbying is coming from for some of the policy choices we're making. And it's a strange time at the moment. I love the concept of when the facts change, because right now there are no real goodies and no real baddies in this whole climate and energy debate. I think um, I was interested that Labour is framing this as an energy crisis, which is the same as the Conservatives in Europe. And I think it is an energy crisis. There are other issues of um, income and inequality crises that are happening. But the energy crisis and a security crisis is a clever framing because it reminds us that no matter what happens, New Zealand is a long way in our supply chains. And one of the arguments has been, for instance, well, we have to keep Marsden going because we need to have a way of refining um, oil here locally. But the difficulty is that we still have to get the original crude oil here somehow. So at some point, we're going to have to start thinking, how do we actually sustain ourselves in an increasingly disruptive um, and disrupted international economy, how do we reduce our energy use and still increase production? And that's a very big question in which there aren't easy wins. Um, trying to encourage the community to focus on our solidarity collective outcomes worked for a while in something like covid where actually you could see people getting sick unless you collectively helped each other. It's going to be really hard with climate to keep that same sense of we need to do this for each other. We need to not buy that really expensive car. We need to actually, as a company or as a firm, reduce our energy use and ensure our security of supply in renewables and other ways. That's going to be hard when it's expensive, when you're thinking that you're competing against competitors internationally who might not have those same controls. So that's where I think the reality, though, is that trade agreements, international frameworks are changing and companies and countries that are self-sustaining and focused more on renewables and less energy over the long term will be advantaged but it is going to be an incredibly hard sell in our short-term election cycles. And, and that is really hard. I can't, if I could solve that, it would be like, 
an, an amazing thing if we could solve that. But we just have to work with the people that we've got in the communities that we've got and know that one great thing about New Zealand is that we are small enough and pragmatic enough that if we could unlock some of these conversations, it, they're at least less polarised than the US. We are less at risk than Europe right now. So now is the time to be having these conversations about how we increase national security. It's it's interesting to see in the Northern Hemisphere, in particular uh, Europe and, and Germany, where they you know are much closer to the security crisis, where they have effectively decided to uh, take two or three steps backwards on their uh, journey to carbon zero by recommissioning coal-fired power stations and also building new LNG terminals just in a desperation to avoid having to use more Russian gas. You do quite a bit of uh, work with the IPCC in coordinating different countries, how, how do you feel that this crisis, which seems to be pitting one type of governance in one part of the world, the, the East, if you like, the autocratic um, East against um, the liberal democratic West, uh, how do you think that might affect the you know, essential global cooperation you need to deal with climate change? It's incredibly hard. And again, there aren't really goodies and baddies <laughs> like... For instance, after the um, COP26 um, meeting that was had where India was criticised for saying that it, putting in that last minute motion where it said that it wanted to um, reduce but not end unabated coal use. On the other hand, India is arguing that um, other countries have had years and years of unfettered use of energy and resources and they have millions of people to protect. And I think that if we get too locked into being absolutely sure we're right, <laughs> we're not actually going to be pragmatic about solving the situation. At the moment in the situation that Ukraine's facing, my colleague, Dr. Svetlana um, Krakowska, who led the Ukrainian delegation for the IPCC, who was just amazing and was negotiating with us while her four children and she were sheltering and that she had to eventually cut off um, being part of the meeting because there was a missile that had just landed really close to their house, shook the whole building, and she had to get the kids to somewhere safe. But she came back online afterwards, and it's been widely reported, that she um, she talked about the fact that the war and our global dependency on fossil fuels, um, gas and coal and oil are very similar problems and we have to wean off that. Uh, and I think that one of the things that Germany is doing is, yes, sure, there is this big push to maybe lock in kind of infrastructure around ports that are is going to make it very difficult to later on switch to hydrogen or later on go to renewables. But at the same time, Germany has also announced its renewed commitment to 100% renewables by 2035. And there is a real struggle at the moment between does this energy crisis provoke and prompt a rollout of more green tech or is it going to just simply boost domestic fossil fuels and more domestic mining, more domestic fracking, um, more coal use. I think that some of the really big interesting debates are the ones that Carbon Track has been following, for instance, showing that 
there have been billions, um, billions of dollars saved every year by the UK switching to greater use of wind. The trouble is that you've got very large interests lobbying very hard, and as you say, to people who are very scared uh, that we have to keep business as usual, we have to keep the oil and the gas flowing because your your own domestic fuel bills are going up, your own uh, home energy heating is going up. But if everybody just reduced their home energy by one degree, which is a fascinating debate in the UK, um, you would also be making massive energy savings. So trying to shift the conversation from just more renewables to actually let's overall think about how we reduce energy use, that's going to be the really big big, difficult challenge. So the flip side of this, you know, um, short-term pain, short-term response is that when you do have a crisis, you can, um, as a politician uh, and a society, uh, not waste a good crisis, as they, as they say. Um, is there another way to sort of flip this on its head and reframe it and say, you know, we've now got a security crisis which actually mimics uh, a climate crisis. We have a, two tasks on our hand to reduce our carbon usage to naught, but also reduce our reliance on these um, corrupt uh, petro states, uh, in particular um, Russia, Saudi Arabia. It's much easier for Europe with an actual war on their borders, but even New Zealand to to say, okay, this is a it's an energy crisis, but it's also a security crisis, and it's a long term crisis, and sometimes the biggest things are achieved when you're in the middle of a crisis and people drop the politics as usual and um, get on and do it. Absolutely. And I think what I've found fascinating is that the Conservatives in Britain have framed this as a security and energy crisis. And I think that shows that it's possible for the left and the right to respond in the same way. And they are still pushing all cynicism aside the Conservatives are really, really pushing for a reduction, at least in coal and an increase in its um, renewable use that's quite significant. Um, And I think that this is a wake-up call to New Zealand. We've known how far away we are. That worked to our advantage sometimes in COVID, but it also works for our to our disadvantage for supply chains and for exporting and for, for manufacturing and for and for the industries that we've relied on that are high fossil fuel industries like tourism to replace uh, or to provide us with our GDP growth. So I think thinking about this as a security crisis is critical and being strong in your overall vision about what it would look like when you come through this matters, which is why I was really pleasantly surprised that the government stuck to its guns about its investments in its public transport as well as cutting fossil fuels because cutting fossil fuel tax in the long term fossil fuel tax is going to be gone if we as we increase our electrification of our private um, transport it's going to become an increasingly problematic tax as I said at the beginning because it's going to impact more and more on the poor who are stuck with the old cars so we are going to need to change that anyway um And actually, going back to first principles of how we protect ourselves is an important conversation. And unlike COVID, the kinds of things we need to do, 
some of them will make our lives better. Like in COVID, we've had to separate from each other. We've had to mask up, keep social distance, stay isolated. But what we're trying to do domestically now in a climate um, crisis is live more simply and well with people you care about within a 15-minute walking radius. Have employment and production that you can control as a local economy and as an export economy. And that actually can be quite a positive and motivating vision for people, but it's just being brave enough to make the shift. And one of the key things that the latest in, um, intergovernmental panel report said is that we really need the political will for this. And I was intrigued that 195 governments signed off, oh yes, we need the political will to make these changes. And we were thinking, yeah, but that's you. (laughs) The public's already there, now you need to do it. Mm, That's part of the problem though. Whenever um, voters are surveyed about climate change and climate change action, everyone agrees that action is needed. But when you prod them about what action they're going to take and what they think of particular policy ideas. The answers always seem to come back with, oh, yeah, but not now and not me and not that. Yeah, but I think that's why we also need to change our public imagination and the kind of narratives we use. I think things like these conversations, things like um, stuff making an agreement on climate policy, we know that makes a big difference. I was going back through the research on how New Zealand's editorials have framed environmental issues and climate issues in particular in the last 20 years, and especially at times of elections. Um, And uh, Jeff Ford, who's a um, researcher at the University of Canterbury has also analysed all the parliamentary debates and also all the talkback radio debates and as well as newspapers on this. And it is fascinating that it's around climate and economic growth that New Zealand is extremely conservative. We have had very negative uh, editorial tones around issues about environment and climate and very pro-growth uh, on, on every debate. And I think what was very striking to me working as a researcher in the UK um, is that that debate isn't as deep there. The the debate about living well and sustainable prosperity is questioning growth in a way that we don't yet hear. And it is starting to think about um, consuming less, what does well-being mean at a deep level in a way that we've given lip service to but the derision that the well-being budgets received of course they've got huge problems with them but as a concept they were just kind of laughed at in editorials there was no sort of serious engagement with well what would an economy look like that is based on reducing our overall growth and improving our well-being can we do that can we decouple some of these things We haven't had those serious conversations and I'm hopeful that with editorial changes, big policy shifts, that those discussions start to become more common and more regular because we are out of step with many of our uh, countries we like to compare ourselves with in that sense. Mm. Just finally, um, the one surprise on Monday was the halving of public transport costs for three months and... um, we haven't really had much of a 
suggestion or a mainstream debate about um, coming up with free or extremely low public transport costs as a way to engineer a just transition. Uh, what did you think of that um, policy change and is it something that should be uh, reframed or recast not so much as a short-term energy crisis response but maybe as a long-term tool or vehicle to engineer a, a just transition? Absolutely. And that's what I mean, that I was very surprised that that reduction in um, public transport uh, costs was introduced at the same time. It's great. But what's fascinating is that there's been virtually no editorial debate about that. And actually rolling that out nationally and quickly is going to be a big logistical challenge for the government. It's already struggling just to roll out its carbon neutral public service. You know, there's huge resistance and we seem to be behind on on all our goals. So reducing um, funding, um, reducing the cost, sorry, of public transport and making sure that happens right now is going to be difficult. But sustaining it over the long term is that kind of massive, far-reaching step change that we keep talking about that we actually need to deliver. Bronwyn Hayward from the University of Canterbury, thank you very much. You've been on When the Facts Change. Thanks for having me. It was lovely to talk to you. was Bronwyn Hayward from Canterbury University. Next up, we speak to Kirsty Wilde, who's an environmental sociologist, but also a public health researcher on transport. Well, welcome, uh, Kirsty. Great to see you there. Um, I'm curious about um, what you think of the government's announcement on Monday that it's going to reduce fuel uh, levies by 25 cents a litre and halve the price of public transport for at least three months in reaction to this big rise in petrol prices. Um, yeah, kia ora, Bernard. It's hard not to feel some relief for people who are really struggling on multiple levels um, with affording the cost of fuel. Um, this isn't really a new thing. Like in the last five years, the amount that low-income um, New Zealanders spend on transport has doubled, mainly because, you know, the housing crisis is sort of reducing the amount of money that they have, um, while for wealthy New Zealanders, the amount they spend hasn't really changed. So we, we already have an affordability crisis when it comes to transport and lots of evidence that people are already, you know, trading off food against petrol, that there's quite a bit of what we call foregone mobility, like people who just don't really have any transport at all. Uh, forced walking, so particularly common amongst women in low-income communities. Um, yeah, so so we already have a transport affordability crisis, and um, so I am grateful that that is being acknowledged in this moment in a small way. I guess it's it's still it still feels difficult that so many of us, including and particularly low-income New Zealanders, are kind of still being forced to participate in this very volatile, very expensive carbon market, you know. You know, why is it that we still don't have cheap local options like walking and cycling so that you don't have to spend so much of your income on transport? So I, 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 I feel a bit anxious that 
that we may start to get into a position where we don't address that situation and we're just effectively coming up with a new type of subsidy. You know, we don't want a, a new accommodation supplement, but for petrol. You know, we don't want to continue on this sort of uh, tradition that we've seen in the last 20 years of, you know, instead of addressing low wages we have working for families, instead of addressing the human rights crisis that's housing, we have an accommodation supplement, instead of a- addressing the sort of affordability crisis in transport, we, we start to subsidise petrol. So I feel grateful that people are being given some relief so that, you know, so that they can eat and they can provide for their families. But, you know, it just emphasises how fast we need to move to give us options to sort of get out of this, you know, really volatile, um, expensive transport market that we've, we've, we've created for ourselves. So how could we um, change policies to give people more options to, you know, cycle or walk or take the bus or the or the train, what sort of policies could the government use or, or do um, to do it much, much faster? Because as you say, for a lot of people now, they don't really have a choice. They have to fill up the tank of the used import uh, that they bought for two or $3,000 and that's belching black smoke and is still cheaper than an electric bike. Yeah. Well, we're starting to see some of the changes that we need, like fuel efficiency standards you know we've kind of ended up with this transport market that that, that's kind of like this americanization that's based on this whole idea of like just cheap gas with these giant utes and these suvs and we really need to rein that in we're starting to do these very very mild adjustments there with like the clean car discount and fuel efficiency standards um i think we need to really focus in on low-income communities, though, and I think we need to do four things. We need to make it safe to walk and cycle and everywhere. You know, it needs to be just that it comes standard that when a new road's put in, it's got a cycle way or there's a new neighbourhood, it's designed on low-traffic neighbourhood principles because it doesn't just matter in terms of providing a a low-cost transport alternative, locally an active one, but you can't use public transport if you can't get to it safely. So it's the foundation, you know, supporting walking and cycling is the foundation of an affordable, usable transport system. You know, we can introduce legislation where it just becomes a requirement that that councils sort of just, just have to start doing this stuff. They need to start retrofitting suburbs so that they are safe for people to use for walking and cycling. And then I think we should make public transport free. Um, It's an absolute drop in the bucket. You know, I don't quite know how much it's going to cost. There's different estimates, but it would be under a billion dollars a year. I mean, we're suggesting um, spending, I mean, it'll be upwards of 13 billion on just one light rail line in Auckland. Um, And it will make a mass, the most difference to low income people. Not just those low-income people who are stuck in what's called forced car dependency at the moment, but all those low-income people who just have no transport at all. And I would say let's put um, national public transport in there as well, intercity public transport, so that you can actually have life, right? You can take a holiday 
I mean, higher income people are more likely to fly to, to, to for a holiday, but, you know, lower income people are dependent on their cars to go and see Fano or, you know, just have any sort of a life really in terms of, so let's put that in there as well. Um, I think we need to think about shifting the priority uh, for electric car transition into low-income communities, um, and and we will need some sort of some sort of subsidy through our welfare system for people who are still need to use the these petrol cars when those other three things don't work. Um, as our mark our petrol market gets increasingly expensive. What I don't think we need is broad-based petrol subsidies. You know, people who are at the moment who are wealthy and are using these big, real gas-guzzling cars, you know, it isn't a disaster that they start to get some market signals around downsizing, which, you know, happened with the oil shocks before. These same people who drive these big SUVs now used to, you know, baby boomers who drive this used to mock their parents for their giant cars in the 50s and the 60s, you know, and, and we our cars got smaller and now they've got bigger again and, you know, it won't be a disaster for wealthy people to start to experience some of those market signals around downsizing. So, yeah, I, I, I think we just, we need to look at how this sort of stuff comes standard, really, those three things there are to make walking safer, to make public transport free, and to um, subsidise electric vehicles for people on low incomes. What was the fourth one? I think we will somewhere. So it was walking and cycling safe. Um, so I think we will effectively, you know, I said at the beginning, we don't want to see an accommodation supplement for fuel, but we probably will. And we effectively already have, you know, some mechanism through our welfare system for people for whom those first three is is not a possibility. Like for some reason they, you know, I don't know, they've got some job where they, lower income people are particularly likely to have jobs where they um, have to go anywhere day or night um, and be hyper flexible, you know, which is the worst case scenario. In terms, that's why it makes it difficult to, you know, switch to a bike compared to me who lives in the inner city and has a three-kilometre bike ride on <laughs> to work and who has heaps of flexibility, you know. So if there was some reason why, you know, that 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 um, package of support where you could walk and bike locally, so in somewhere like Tamaki Makoto, where I am, half of our trips are cyclable. So if you can walk and cycle for local trips, you know, even if petrol's getting more expensive, you that's going to really reduce the amount that you spend on transport. And then you've got public transport. And yeah, I don't really think we're, we're not going into communities at all and suggesting, you know, what's going to work for transition at the moment. We've just got these very, very shallow subsidies that basically um, are only going to work for wealthy people effectively based on the idea that there'll be a trickle-down effect with things like EVs. But it'll be such a long time. You know, we hold on to our cars for an average of 14 years um, and we need to cut emissions by 60% by 2030. So it's it's wildly unrealistic as well as wildly unfair at the moment. Dr Kirsty Wild there from the University of Auckland. After the break, we speak to Rosie Collins, an economist at Sense Partners, about 
how to work out how to make these changes. Win the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, kia ora and welcome to Rosie Collins from Sense Partners. Rosie, welcome to When the Facts Change. Kia ora, thanks for having me. I'm curious about this problem we seem to have here with the war in Ukraine and the now increasing desperation to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, not just for climate reasons, but for security reasons. But in the short term, in some places, it's going to mean we actually burn more coal and put more carbon into the atmosphere. Can you talk us through how that's that's come about? Yeah, I think there's um, a short-term angle to that answer, and then there's the longer term, what do we do about it? Um, in the short term, there's not a lot we can do because we already stitched ourselves up years ago. So the decisions we're seeing today come from decisions made in 2010. Uh and to do much differently, to sort of say, no, we're not going to use oil now because it's expensive, um, it's sort of akin to uh, starving yourself to try and lose weight as opposed to actually switching your diet down um, towards something healthier long term. So I think it's important to kind of keep a level head when we're looking at what the responses are now. Uh, but it is frustrating uh, if you are interested in, in decarbonisation to see what looks like going in the wrong direction um, with things like fuel tax cuts. But I think if you can if you can separate those issues out, it helps um, to sort of get your head around it. Yeah, because on the, on the face of it, um, we are using the price signal of a higher price of fuel. And you could argue collectively the globe is having a higher uh, carbon price to try and change our behaviour. Yet there is this sort of thinking fast, thinking slow political lizard brain problem, which is when prices rise too fast, 
it's like someone poked us in the middle of our brains with a stick and we go, ah, make it stop, <laughs> make it stop. And this seems to be an issue around the world. How, how do how do policymakers, you know, people think about how to make the change but do it in a way that people don't go, ah, make it stop? Uh, so I think there's, there's two aspects to that as well. One is um, you've got to have the choices available to people to actually be able to switch at times like this. And the last oil shock, um, in, or the, not the last, but the 1970s oil shock in the Netherlands was catalyzed um, as a way to sort of retain cycling rates in the Netherlands as opposed to necessarily improving them. But it put in a lot of infrastructure in those um, cities in the Netherlands that um, was driven by high fuel prices, but also a lot of activism around cycling um, and a need to have safe infrastructure. So uh, high prices are uh, one condition, or what's the word, necessary but not necessary but not sufficient um, to see mode shift. And we know that wealthier groups in New Zealand don't actually change their behaviour when the price goes up because they can afford to wear it and they'll just keep driving. So price is not the tool we want to use to see mode shift in those groups. In fact, what we need to see is really... Um, uh, policies becoming a nuisance to make it a hassle to drive um, excessively. And that means uh, congestion charging um, for peak times. Uh, it means removing pass- parking in cities for uh, people that don't need it and it's excluding people with accessibility needs. Uh, and it's putting in cycleways and reclaiming space for walking. Uh, those policies can change the face of a city to make it more climate friendly in the, in the long run. And um, how do we make it a just transition? Because that's the sort of underlying issue we're sort of talking about here in that the shock of a higher petrol price is hurting people who are also having to pay higher food prices and higher rents. And the government and everyone wants to reduce some of that immediate financial pain for people who really can't afford it. This begs the broader question uh, of, you know, how do we adjust from having our lives based around jumping in our cars every five minutes to go to work or school or play and take the kids to school and um, live in the suburbs quite a way away from where we work or our schools? How do we make that adjustment and not punish those who can least afford it uh, with higher prices and higher costs, like you know, forcing them to buy electric cars or forcing them to pay for car parks? So, I mean, as, as we should, we, um, we cannot respond to the climate crisis if we don't address the cost of living crisis. Those two things are um, inextricably linked together. And I used the word stitch ourselves up before, but I think it's true in the same way um, that we don't have good options for uh, switching modes for transport. Uh, a lot of New Zealand households don't have any fat left in their budgets because they're spending so much on housing uh, and they're forced to live in houses that are far out of town uh, and that don't actually have good accessible transport routes. So the housing crisis uh, in many ways is the transport crisis. They are, again, the same problem. Uh, so to address it, we need to have affordable housing in the rich suburbs and the inner cities that people don't want to see denser housing in. Uh, And to reclaim that space uh, for um, all types of households is, uh, I guess, necessary to actually address the transition in a just way. Uh, And then there are other tools that we can use to redistribute um, 
wealth in our society. And if fuel tax isn't a traditional lever because it isn't targeted, it goes to everyone. And we've already talked about how richer households don't tend to adjust their behaviour when prices are high. So that's just really a free boon to those groups who aren't actually going to um, take a climate positive step with that discount. Um, so, yeah, I guess maybe it's a bit muddled, but I think that's how I would start thinking about the just transition. They are, in many ways, the same. So aside from the carbon price, you're talking about policy decisions that could uh, make a difference and hopefully uh, quickly, and the quicker the better. Uh, aside from, you know, uh, making it more inconvenient to to uh, drive by increasing congestion charges and uh, parking charges and, you know, changing rules on, um, you know, always having to have car parks with certain numbers of houses and that sort of thing. And actually removing and actually removing the car parks. So it's not just that they cost more, but that you actually can't find them. And it's, um, it's such a hassle that it's just easier to take the bus because that happens in European cities as per norm. Um, no matter how wealthy you are, you take the public transit system in and out of town, generally, unless you've got a very good reason to use the car that day. Uh, we seem a little bit... Um, afraid of, of doing that um, but that's just inevitable that we'll have to move towards that sort of style of city if we want to actually decarbonise them. And uh, what are, what else could we do that could be quite um, uh, fast if we really were treating it liking, like a climate emergency in the same way that we've treated COVID as, a, as an emergency? If we're in a warlike situation, you know, things we wouldn't normally do in peacetime, we, we do do in wartime and often it's... Um, politically easier to do in wartime when you've got uh, a crisis, which you could argue... Um, or a bad poll. Yeah, <laughs> that, we, yeah that, we sh that we shouldn't waste. And I need to clarify around a cost of living crisis or a climate crisis. And I know they're linked, but I think the answer changes depending on what you're interested in. Yeah, no, it's def definitely a cost of living crisis. The Prime Minister even agreed it was a couple of days ago. And in situations like this, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have systems for redistribution. We're just really crap at using them. And our benefit system's really mean. It's um, under-resourced. It keeps people in poverty. And we can increase those benefit rates. We've done it before. We can do it again. The cost of living has gone up and we should respond accordingly. There's no need to change the mechanism. It's just a case of using it appropriately. Um other other ways they could increase incomes is looking at things like income tax brackets for the lower income households. Uh, those can be expensive to change around, but we have options there. So there is there is plenty of scope within the already set political toolbox that we have to address the cost of living crisis. We can't change global costs, but we can respond to who who bears those costs the most. Um, in terms of the climate crisis. Uh, I think the move to discount public transport is a good signal. I think there have been um, cases in Paris where, where cycleways have been rolled out extremely quickly using paint and concrete bollards, much like those that were rolled out at Parliament only two weeks ago, um, that we could actually think about slapping together a pretty ad hoc network of cycle lanes very quickly if, if this oil shock was to continue and if we thought we needed to get away from using cars quickly. Um, I don't know how much that would actually hold out in reality because our institutions like to make things slow and perfect and deliberate. Um, but there are choices. There are choices to how to respond. And there's sort of levers around income, public space um, and longer term housing is where we have the most control to respond to what is global forces in terms of 
the war, the climate, and etc. Yeah, one of the um, criticisms is that we can't afford, as a government, to spend that money on subsidising public transport or. Uh, helping to um, build more affordable houses in the right places, or um, paying for the bollards and the and the and the signs to reconfigure the roads. What what would you say to that? I think there's a lot of focus on um, things that haven't happened yet, and and that we need to invest in as being the major cost. But the truth is that we also can't afford to live this way either. We can't afford to have a billion dollars a year in congestion in Auckland. We can't afford to have our workers living on the far edges of suburbs or moving towns altogether, and so hospitality can't get staff. Um, it, it, I like to think of cities as a um, as an ecosystem, and um, biodiversity is is incredibly important for ecosystems. And affordable housing is essentially that function. It it brings together um, um, the shape of a city and all the skills that we need in the right places. So a lot of a lot of the stuff around what we can't do to improve cities' infrastructure um, is born from this idea of a way a city should be that's based in thinking from 20 years ago. But we know that the current patterns aren't meeting our needs and skills. It limits our productivity. It keeps people in hardship. It um, undermines wealth growth for the next generation. It uh, undermines political trust and social cohesion. So there is a range of consequences that we choose to live with by not investing. So uh, I understand there's political limits on how fast you can do these transitions, but um, can't is really, yeah, um, the truth when it comes to some of these things. And just finally, um, Treasury has talked a good game about living standards frameworks and we've heard discussions about wellbeing budgets. Is the way that we um, do cost-benefit analysis or uh, economic analysis on projects or changes in taxes and those sorts of things, are we included the f- including the full range of costs and benefits? For example, on um, you know when when uh, people think about uh, whether or not to build a road, we look at time saved as one way to do things, but we don't necessarily look at the increased uh, costs of more accidents or more mental health issues or um, uh, the alternatives of people um, cycling or work- walking, which may be better for our physical health, or we haven't done the right analysis, which includes the potential carbon liabilities if we've um, completely blown our international budgets for carbon, which means that we have to spend billions on buying carbon credits, uh, assuming we can buy them. Do you think that maybe if we uh, analyse the situation differently and uh, made different um, calculations in our decision-making systems that we might end up with a different result? So I think a lot of what happens um, or what we deal with in uh, decarbonisation policy generally is around systems change. And the thing with changing systems is that it takes a swath of very small changes to kind of equal the outcome that you're looking for. And that doesn't lend itself very easily to cost-benefit analysis. So it's really hard to say that this extra cycleway in the suburb or this extra bus service on this line is going to deliver the benefits that I'm looking for in terms of mode shift. But we know that cumulatively those actions uh, can lead to systems change. So there, I think cost-benefit analysis has served 
economists both well and lead them astray in its time and it's one tool for analysis but in analysis or so in, in looking at uh, systems change you do need to look at a bit more broadly and I think the economics profession is pretty attuned to that I know there's a, uh, a bit of a bad reputation sometimes but we do discuss these things it's just how do you um, then also weigh those other alternatives up objectively because some toolkits are better than others at helping decision makers think through those trade-offs so I think yeah answer is is yes cost-benefit analysis has its place but uh, is limited in some of these bigger system changes. Rosie Collins there from Sense Partners. I'd like to thank Rosie, but also Kirsty Wilde from the University of Auckland and Bronwyn Hayward from the University of Canterbury. This week on When the Facts Change, a podcast brought to you on the Spinoff Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. I'm Bernard Hickey, and I'd love it if you subscribed to our weekly podcast so you can find out all about what's happening in our economy, in our society, and in our environment, in the worlds of politics and economics. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network together with KiwiBank. It was presented by Bernard Hickey. It was recorded, edited and mixed by Jonathan Pierce with help from Oliver Devlin. And it was produced by Jane Yee. Find out more about Kiwi making Kiwi better off at kiwibank.co.nz. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.